Hello, everyone. In this podcast, I'm honored to chat with Dr. Ronald Krauss. Dr. Krauss received his medical degree from Harvard University. He is a board-certified physician in internal medicine, endocrinology, and metabolism, and he's one of the top scientists in his field of cardiovascular research. Ron is really one of the pioneering scientists that changed the way we all think about cholesterol and saturated fat. He developed an assay that allows the quantification of low-density lipoprotein particle size and concentration, known to the wider world as LDL cholesterol, based on a technique which determines the size of the particle based on physics, meaning the speed at which it flies through the air. Ron and I discuss what HDL and LDL cholesterol are, what they do in the body, and how they play a role in heart disease. We talk about what small, dense LDL particles are, how they form, what effect eating saturated fat versus refined carbohydrates have on LDL particle size and heart disease risk, and more generally, what the main risk factors for heart disease are. Ron also talks about the good, bad, and the ugly of LDL-lowering cholesterol drugs, known as statins, and much more. This episode is loaded with so much good information, I literally could sit and talk to Ron for hours. Normally, I would take this time to tell you about my crowdfunding campaign, but I will avoid getting into the details on that right now. If you want to learn more about how to support the podcast or what my crowdfunding is about, you can check it out on my website at foundmyfitness.com or on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash foundmyfitness. Today, instead, I'm going to tell you about a few ways you can stay in touch with what I'm doing outside of these podcasts. The first way is to go download one of my mobile apps. I have both an Android app and an iPhone app that is a great way to receive occasional updates as well as the hottest news in science, health, fitness, nutrition, neuroscience, and aging. To try out one of my apps, search on either Google Play or iPhone App Store for Found My Fitness. The second way you can stay up to date is by following me on Twitter or Facebook, where I try to share one interesting news story every single day and enjoy chatting with many of you almost daily. Head over to twitter.com forward slash foundmyfitness and facebook.com forward slash foundmyfitness to connect with me there. I hope you all really enjoy this podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Found My Fitness podcast. I'm sitting here with Dr. Ronald Krauss, who is the director of the Atherosclerosis Center at Children's Hospital Oakland Research Institute, and he is an adjunct professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I personally think of uh, Dr. Krauss as one of the scientists that played a very important role in changing the way we think about cholesterol. And the way that he was able to do that was developing an assay that is able to differentiate between the different sizes of lipoproteins that carry cholesterol. Now, let Ron talk a little bit more about that, but, you know, thanks for being here, Ron. Well, I'm delighted to have this conversation. So for decades, we have, we, meaning, you know, most, most people have this idea in our minds that there are two types of cholesterol. There's the good cholesterol and the bad cholesterol. And the good cholesterol was thought to be high-density lipoproteins, or HDL. The bad cholesterol was thought to be low-density, or in low-density lipoproteins, or LDL. But we know now from your research and other people's research that it's much, much more complicated than that. And there's actually various sizes and densities of these lipoproteins. Can you explain a little bit about what 
the various sizes of these lipoproteins are and what they mean for what they do in the body, what their normal function is, and what that means for heart disease risk? Yes. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, uh, cholesterol is part of the uh, LDL, uh, but it's not the whole story. Um, when we measure LDL cholesterol, it's really the summation of cholesterol in a whole series of LDL particles that range from very small and compact or dense LDL uh, to large uh, and uh, more, more f people use the word fluffy, which is a term I'm not particularly fond of. Buoyant. But it's buoyant. Mm -hmm. They tend to float more because they actually have more cholesterol and they're larger. So, so that spectrum of particles, we started to break down uh, with methodology that I was uh, fortunate enough to have available to me and help develop. Um, to show that um, uh, these different forms of LDL across the spectrum uh, really have very different metabolic and pathologic properties. And uh, to keep it relatively simple, we initially categorized uh, those uh, spectrum of particles into two major uh, forms, those that are smaller and more dense versus those that are larger and more buoyant. Uh, that somewhat oversimplifies the story, but it does capture an important feature, which was what first attracted our attention to this, and that is people with a higher heart disease risk and people who have uh, evidence of heart disease uh, tend to have uh, more of, of the particles that are the smaller and more dense particles, um, and those that are those individuals that are more healthy uh, tended to have more of the larger, more buoyant LDL. Uh, that became somewhat counterintuitive because when we measure LDL cholesterol in the clinic uh, as the summation of cholesterol in all of these particles, um, we do know that that is related to heart disease risk. LDL cholesterol is a reasonable measure of heart disease risk. Um, but what it turned out is that within these particle uh, uh, profiles that we were studying, the highest risk was related to particles that actually had less cholesterol in them. So it led to a kind of a rethinking of the role of cholesterol. Not that cholesterol is not relevant to heart disease. In fact, it's cholesterol that builds up in the arteries. The question is, how does it get there? And it turns out that even though these smaller particles carry less cholesterol, they do have a greater tendency to wind up in the artery wall. Uh, they can be um, bound more tightly to artery tissue. Uh, and once they get into the arteries, they tend to stick and they tend to be oxidized more rapidly. And all of these features we and others helped to characterize once we discovered this differentiation between larger and small LDL. And it helps to explain uh, the associations that we saw, that is, uh, the particles that are smaller and more dense do bring cholesterol into the arteries, but they have other properties that make them more damaging to the arteries, as I described, versus the larger LDL that, even though they have more cholesterol, do not uh, have the same pathologic features. And that differentiation, although it was a somewhat oversimplification of what is, is in fact a much more complicated picture, um, does carry into the clinic. And so we were able to develop uh, tests that have been used clinically um, in practice. Um, uh, I think more and more over time people are appreciating the, the value of these measurements and thinking more about LDL particles rather than LDL cholesterol. I, I usually think of LDL cholesterol, the, the larger buoyant LDL cholesterol, as you know, something that's important for cells that need to repair damage, to repair their cell membranes, growing cells. Right. What causes the 
formation of these smaller dense right. LDL particles. Well, it is true. We, we, we think about um, you know, LDL as if it's bad um, and cholesterol um, is bad. It, you know, it gets into the arteries. But of course, cholesterol itself is vital for every aspect of human biology. Um, uh, ranging from cell membrane function, as you point out, proliferation of cells, growth, and the health of cells um, are dependent on cholesterol. And most uh, tissues, uh, in fact, really, virtually all tissues in the human body under normal conditions are capable of manufacturing their own cholesterol. That's really an important system, which relates to some of the other work we are doing when we start to manipulate cholesterol metabolism with use of drugs like statins and also with diet. Um, but the fundamental role of cholesterol is, a, is one to, that promotes health. Um, where we get into trouble is when it uh, exceeds the ability of cells to take uh, cholesterol out of the blood, particularly from the lip, uh, through the liver, uh, and it builds up in the blood and, there, and gets into the arteries is where it becomes pathologic. Well, where do these particles come from? Uh, that is something that we're very interested in. Um, uh, the uh, origin of LDL particles is in the liver, uh, the liver packages uh, lipids, uh, cholesterol, but as well as other lipids, triglycerides uh, and phospholipids, uh, into this um, spherical uh, particle uh, that also has proteins. And so it's a combination of lipids and proteins, and that's how we get the term lipoproteins, lipids and proteins complex together. Uh, for the most part, in the form of uh, triglyceride-rich, not cholesterol-rich, particles. There are uh, ways of unloading triglyceride from the liver. Triglyceride is a fat that's used also uh, for many positive uh, features of our life, such as uh, energy uh, storage and metabolism. Uh, and in packaging these uh, triglyceride-rich uh, uh, particles, there's some cholesterol that comes along with it. And there are specific proteins that characterize these particles as well. Um, there's different forms of these um, of these uh, triglyceride-rich particles are called very low-density lipoproteins, or VLDL. Um, and uh, the different forms of VLDL give rise to different forms of LDL. That's one of the reasons that um, we have these different forms of LDL, is that they can originate from different precursors produced by the liver. Um, so cholesterol, in a sense, is a, a passenger on a, on a train that is mainly delivering triglyceride, but that triglyceride gets used by the body, it gets hydrolyzed, it gets broken down into fatty acids, which are used for energy and for energy storage and uh, muscle and adipose tissue, um, are very important metabolic players. Um, and as that uh, process occurs uh, uh, through a lipase uh, that breaks down the triglyceride, um, the particles get smaller and smaller. They lose their triglyceride, but they tend to retain most of their cholesterol. So there is a shrinkage from what is a big, uh, big buoyant, triglyceride-rich VLDL particle um, to a smaller, more dense LDL particle. And to the extent that that process can continue to occur during the um, uh, uh, excursion of lipoproteins in the blood, uh, they can get smaller and smaller. And that's how you want me finally went up with the small LDL uh, particles that we've been talking about. Um, so, uh, so the role of cholesterol in these particles uh, uh, is not a crucial feature of their uh, biological role. Uh, as I say, most tissues can, in fact, all tissues, as I said, can make cholesterol. 
um, tissues don't make triglycerides. So, so the triglyceride transport is a main feature, and most people don't understand that. Um, and the LDL is kind of a byproduct of that uh, met metabolic conversion that we uh, uh, just described. Um, and um, LDL are used by tissues. Uh, uh, adrenal gland uses LDL cholesterol. The gonads use cholesterol. Uh, to synthesize, for example, hormones that are made by those tissues. So LDL does have a role, uh, and the cholesterol does have a biological role, but it's not a crucial one. Um, and so that's uh, one of the issues that we have as humans versus almost all other species. Uh, we don't have uh, a very efficient way of removing LDL from the blood. Um, uh, so our levels are much higher than almost any other species, um, uh, certainly most, uh, most other mammals. You have to feed an enormous amount of cholesterol in order to get anything like what we have in our blood. Um, so it's this inefficient removal of LDL that leads to the potential uh, for accumulation in the blood and ultimately arteries. And it's really the fundamental reason that we as a species are so susceptible to heart disease risk. I usually think of the, the HDL as serving that role of removing it from, from our arteries. Um, is that an accurate way to think about it? Yeah. Well, one of the so HDL, uh, and again, it's the same general principle um, that I've just described for LDL is that uh, HDL is a particle, or HDL uh, are particles, because again, like LDL, uh, in fact, even more so than LDL, HDL is a, is very heterogeneous, and there's uh, even even more uh, biological variability among the different forms of HDL particles than is the case for LDL particles. But if you group them together and you measure the cholesterol within the, col within the collective HDL particle distribution, that, uh, that measurement is strongly associated with, with lower heart disease risk. We, we know this from countless studies. In fact, HDL cholesterol is a, um, a strong, uh, low HDL cholesterol is a stronger predictive, uh, predictor of heart disease risk overall than is high LDL cholesterol. Most people don't realize that. So why is that true? Well, um, uh, certainly one of the reasons that's true is um, thought to be the process you just described, uh, uh, which is uh, the ability of HDL, in particular forms of HDL, which are still being studied, um, to extract cholesterol uh, from tissues. Um, uh, all tissues, uh, as I say, make cholesterol. And uh, when there's excess cholesterol in the cell, it can be toxic to the cell. So it's an important role for HDL uh, to scavenge cholesterol or to extract it from, um, uh, uh, from these tissues that are making cholesterol. And one of those tissues is the artery, and there are cells in the artery, macrophages, that are uh, uh, filling up with cholesterol that could ultimately cause heart attacks you know, through plaque formation. Um, those cells, uh, uh, when they accumulate too much cholesterol, um, can unload it onto HDL particles. And so uh, it's one of the reasons we think higher HDL is beneficial. Uh, however, um, HDL cholesterol as a, a marker for heart disease is not uh, saying the same thing as HDL cholesterol is a, um, uh, a causative factor, although HDL cholesterol actually causes heart disease. Um, because low HDL cholesterol is also associated with an increased level of these small LDL particles. And that, that, that was an observation that I first made that led me to realize that uh, these, these uh, LDL uh, particles that are small and dense may be associated with heart disease because they were associated with low HDL. Um, and that uh, represented really the axis of a 
larger complex of metabolic uh, relationships that um, we've termed atherogenic dyslipidemia. So what does that mean? That means there's a collection of interrelated traits that um, are related to heart disease risk, including, uh, as I mentioned, small LDL, low levels of HDL, particularly HDL cholesterol, um, and um, also higher levels of these triglyceride rich lipoproteins and, uh, and, their, and their remnants. They're, they're, these partially broken down VLDL particles are called remnants. All of these things contribute to atherosclerosis risk. So it's a collective of um, uh, this axis of interrelated lipoprotein changes that um, is really the important measure of heart disease risk, probably the single most important phenotype or trait related to lipids. Uh, connected with heart disease in the population. It's not high LDL cholesterol that we most commonly see. It's this uh, metabolic trait, atherogenic dyslipidemia, of which the small LDL is a marker for and is almost certainly a causative feature of the disease associated with risk. But the HDL may be coming along really as a, just a covariate. It, it, we don't know that the, uh, that the HDL is really, uh, uh, this has the same important causal role as, as LDL. Uh, and the reason for saying that is um, a couple of lines of evidence, but the one that's most compelling is that efforts to reduce heart disease risk uh, by treatments that raise HDL cholesterol have failed, whereas almost every treatment that has been uh, aimed at lowering LDL sufficiently has been successful. So as a causal factor, high LDL, particularly small LDL, uh, is unquestionably a pathologic uh, agent that is worthy of therapeutic um, uh, lowering, whereas the role of HDL is a bit more complicated. Um, and the, the, the removal process is important. There's no question about that. The removal of cholesterol is important. But, but, it, but it, uh, HDL is also a marker for this, this, this other syndrome. And trying to raise HDL cholesterol uh, is not necessarily guaranteed to reduce heart disease risk the same way lowering LDL is. There's also genetic arguments uh, that have been made. Gen genes associated with high LDL are associated with heart disease risk. Um, that's a very important uh, pathologic uh, connection uh, because genes ultimately are the blueprint for uh, our biology. And if the genes associated with high LDL are also associated with heart disease risk, it says that the, that the LDL is really the causal agent. The genes associated with variation in HDL cholesterol have almost in every case, not been associated with heart disease risk. Uh, and that is another argument that has sort of cast the HDL in a somewhat different light than LDL, uh, certainly as a target for therapeutic intervention. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned the, the generation of the small LDL particles, the small dense LDL particles, which, you know, through normal biology, part of these LDL particles are are donating triglycerides to cells and become smaller and smaller. Um, I've done a lot of reading directed from Mark Shiganaga. He had, you know, talked about some very interesting mechanisms and directed me into the literature on the role of inflammation and inflammation in the production of VLDL. So as inflammation goes up, VLDL production is increased. And at least in, the, in a couple of studies that I've read in literature, they seem to, it, it seems to be implied the reason for that is that um, inflammation increases the release of endotoxin, which is a lipopolysaccharide from you know, bacterial cell walls, 
in the gut um, that gets released and it binds to lipoproteins, to all lipoproteins. And it's sort of like an adaptive response to make sure we don't get you know, sepsis or some sort of very toxic infection. Um, and so I, I've done you know, re some reading on a few studies that have shown that you know, endotoxin does bind lipoproteins. And I'm wondering if you've looked into that at all or what role the endotoxin in binding these lipoproteins seems to play in keeping um, the smaller dense lipoproteins in the circulation uh, longer or... Okay. All right. Well, those are, that was, those are, uh, that's a very interesting topic. Uh, and uh, just take a step back um, regarding the role of inflammation in lipoprotein metabolism because that's something that uh, is not widely appreciated. Um, uh, we know that inflammation is an important uh, feature of many chronic diseases, including heart disease. And the artery wall inflammation it, uh, really is the major uh, factor that converts uh, a relatively benign cholesterol deposit into a much more nasty and dangerous form that can cause blood clots and rupture and plaque formation and uh, blocks arteries. Uh, inf inflammation is a key feature of that. So inflammation is really an important feature of, of many aspects uh, of the processes we're talking about. Um, but biologically, um, again, inflammation is not designed uh, to cause heart attacks. It's designed to uh, help us with host defense. So there's a very interesting argument that has been made that uh, part of the uh, physiological driver for, uh, for VLDL secretion by the liver, the production of these triglyceride-rich particles, uh, is really not a nutritional role, although I think it does have an important nutritional role, but perhaps even uh, as importantly, uh, it may serve an important role in host defense. Uh, and, there's some, and so I'll come to the LPS question at the end of, at the end of this little discussion because uh, it, a really interesting sort of uh, corollary of that is, is, uh, is what role does lipoproteins have in the, uh, in the host defense mechanism? And um, what's intriguing, um, and uh, uh, it's sort of a, like a biological fact that um, we don't want to make too much out of, but I think it's very intriguing, is that um, the, the liver constantly makes the major protein that forms the backbone of these VLDL and ultimately LDL particles called ApoB, apoprotein B. It's a very big protein that is biologically ancient. It goes back to lobsters. and It's, it's, a, it's a very uh, important and complicated protein that uh, gives the uh, uh, integrity to the lipoprotein particle. It helps keep all the fat contained and allows the fat to be soluble in the bloodstream. That's the secret of lipoprotein particles is that there is a soluble protein that helps to keep the fat uh, from forming uh, droplets like you see in chicken soup. That it's, uh, it helps to dissolve the fat in the way. Anyway, the ApoB protein is constantly synthesized by the liver. It's under uh, a tonic stimulation. Uh, uh, it's, not so, it's not much regulated. It's just continually being produced and degraded, uh, which seems like a very inefficient process. But one of the uh, thoughts that has intrigued me um, and others is that um, uh, that, the that the regulation of, uh, of uh, ApoB and the uh, particles uh, that uh, are formed uh, uh, on ApoB, the LDL particles, um, uh, is really um, to get these particles out in a hurry when, when, when they're needed. Um, 
because VLDL, it's a huge, uh, it's a huge uh, particle, relatively speaking, to most other biological proteins. Its molecular weight is, can be you know, tens of millions as opposed to you know, 50,000. So it, it takes a lot of work for the liver to make one of these VLDL particles. And um, what, uh, what, the, what the liver doesn't want to do is spend um, hours making a VLDL particle if it needs to come out in a hurry. Well, why would it need to come out in a hurry? Well, one of the arguments is it may be because uh, it contains components, which it does, that help uh, promote inflammation in the circulatory system. Why would that be important? Well, because when you have an organism, maybe a parasite or an other infectious agent uh, in the vascular system, malarial parasites, trypanosomes, uh, whatever you care to mention, viruses, um, uh, one way the body has of eliminating them is by setting up an inflammatory response and an immune response related to that. And VLDL carry pro-inflammatory proteins. They carry also pro-thrombotic proteins. They actually are a very um, efficient delivery system, sort of like a fire truck that carries a lot of things that we can use to fight off infection. Now, biologically, uh, in our current era of antibiotics and antisepsis, uh, that function has sort of faded. Um, but the rapidity of this response and the fact that it's regulated uh, not by uh, production of ApoB, but by degradation, suggests that this is designed to come out in a hurry. And so degradation of ApoB is, uh, is inhibited when there's lipid to be released. So, uh, so the, uh, uh, the ability of the liver to secrete uh, ApoB and the lipids associated with VLDL uh, is increased when uh, there is this additional lipid production that occurs. And that lipid production um, uh, is stimulated by cytokines. Um, so it comes back to uh, the body having a foreign agent in it. Uh, that foreign agent uh, these days is more likely to be a plaque uh, in the artery rather than a, than a bacterial agent. But the response is the same. It says we got cytokines, we got inflammation. Those come to the liver. And we, one of the early studies that got me interested in this aspect of things is that we showed collaboration with people at UCSF that uh, cytokines, uh, such as TNF-alpha uh, uh, in particular, um, uh, but interferon uh, as well, um, stimulate the production of VLVL secretion by the liver. And so, again, uh, infectious agent, inflammatory uh, signals, cytokines are produced, um, increasing lipid synthesis, reducing the degradation of ApoB, allowing the rapid export of these VLVL particles, all of that occurs in minutes. And so that's the sort of thing you want the fire engine to, to get out of that fire station in a hurry. Um, it, it's, it's an intriguing argument uh, that is uh, consistent with the notion that uh, inflammation is a key regulator of lipoprotein metabolism in, the, in a positive way, historically, evolutionary-wise, but in an adverse way in our current environment. So um, where does LPS come in? Well, um, these particles uh, that are secreted, as I mentioned, do get smaller and smaller. Uh, LPS produced through this infectious inflammatory signal uh, does bind to these particles. Um, they're binding to uh, VLDL and LDL uh, is partly, I think, a protective mechanism uh, to sequester the LPS. Again, this is somewhat hypothetical, right. but it's a plausible um, scenario, which requires a lot more study um, to really uh, get the molecular basis of this interaction understood. Um, but 
from a physiological standpoint, there is evidence that um, if you increase the clearance of LDL from the blood through um, drugs like statins, which uh, lower LDL by, uh, we can talk about this perhaps later, the role of LDL receptors in the liver uh, is crucial uh, to regulating LDL in the blood. And because LDL receptors, particularly in the liver, uh, remove LDL from the blood. Um, so uh, it has been shown that if you increase LDL receptor uh, activity and increase LDL uptake from the blood, you can lower LPS levels. So it, it, it's consistent with the idea that uh, it, one of the protective mechanisms, uh, in addition to the secretion of um, uh, these anti-inflammatory, uh, these inflammatory molecules that can kill bugs, uh, one of the other ways that we are protected um, from the effects of sepsis by lipoprotein protein metabolism is probably through the uh, uh, transport and ultimate removal of LPS by these particles. Uh, HDL does that to some extent as well. Um, uh, as I mentioned, all lipoproteins proteins are capable of binding LPS. Um, you know, where that comes from and what the molecular basis for this is uh, and, and what regulates that, um, uh, that binding, of, uh, I think, is an important question that um, we really need to have more work on. I agree. And also whether or not, you know, the, the binding of these, this LPS to these lipoproteins stimulates more of an inflammatory response. Right, right. And the other thing you mentioned, which I, I come back to, is that um, uh, the smaller particles, uh, uh, and th in fact, this is an important uh, feature of these small particles that I didn't mention earlier, that may actually be one of the more important reasons that they're associated with heart disease risk, is they have less affinity for the LDL receptor. Uh, that's been shown by us and by others, uh, that as the uh, particle shrinks to a smaller size, um, the uh, region of the uh, particle that is recognized by the LDL receptor, which is actually a, a region of the ApoB protein that is the receptor recognition site um, uh, for the whole particle, um, gets to be obscured. It gets to be um, uh, less exposed. And uh, that's one reason we think that these particles uh, are less capable of being removed from the blood by the liver. Uh, there are other features of these particles that contrib contribute to that, including changes in other proteins that may inhibit receptor-mediated uptake of these smaller LDLs. So they hang around longer. And that may be one of the more important reasons that they're bad, is not, not because, but partly because of the binding uh, to the artery wall and the oxidation, all of that's important. But the fact that they're circulating so much longer gives them much more opportunity to interact with the arteries and undergo transformations that can be pro-inflammatory themselves. Um, and the uh, ability of LPS to stick to the VLDL means that some of that LPS remains on the particle as it gets smaller and smaller. And if that particle isn't being cleared rapidly, the LPS will be circulating even longer. And it may be part of the whole process by which this contributes to atherosclerosis. And I think that makes perfect sense, and that's a really elegant way of, of explaining it. But the inflammation brings me to another topic, and that okay. is diet. So I think you mentioned earlier that we're producing cholesterol. We produce cholesterol in our cells. We're making cholesterol ourselves. Absolutely. And I think that most people think about cholesterol in their body as originating from the food they eat. They think, for example, right. if they eat some an right. egg, right. egg yolk, which is right. high in cholesterol, right. if they eat six of those eggs, right. then their cholesterol, right. blood cholesterol right. is going to go up. But that's not necessarily true. Can you explain? 
So, so one of my multiple lives has been in the world of nutrition. Um, and uh, 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 early on, uh, I've been interested in nutrition all, all, virtually all my life uh, and uh, really came into lipid protein research because uh, uh, I felt the diet had a very important role in heart disease and that and the lipid protein effects of diet, uh, I thought were really important. Uh, and I've been studying that now for a long time. Uh, so I became involved uh, not just on the research side of things, but also uh, more on the on the public health side through my work with the American Heart Association. I became chairman of the nutrition committee uh, quite a few years ago now, um, and I remember um, uh, that committee, uh, which is now morphed into a into a larger organization that I helped to established within the AHA. It's been an important part of the American Heart Association's messaging to the public. You were, you were uh, involved in the dietary guidelines, right? Yeah, for, from the American Heart Association. We did that. I actually did that twice. And so I, I was forced to sort of deal with translating uh, the science, such as it is, about diet and, and heart disease risk into something that could be actionable. Uh, and that's tough because the data linking uh, diet to, to heart disease risk through any mechanism, lipids or otherwise, um, uh, it really doesn't necessarily establish uh, a, a causal role because there's so many features in diet. You can't just easily pick one thing or another. But cholesterol was on the radar screen. So when I became chairman of the, of the nutrition committee on, the, on my first cycle, uh, uh, there was a lot of media. Uh, I spent a lot of my time dealing with the media. Um, and uh, I was just astonished by the questions I would get about um, uh, dietary cholesterol, blood cholesterol, and as you say, people just conflated those two terms. And I had to spend a considerable portion of my time trying to educate, like the so-called science, well, the science writers um, who were often not trained in science at all. Actually, I'm sorry if I offended anyone, <laughs> but they're trying to understand this, and they just simplify this story to the point where it becomes totally meaningless. Um, uh, the body makes cholesterol; it regulates the absorption of cholesterol from foods. Uh, and the contribution of dietary cholesterol and blood cholesterol, I was actually forced to address this in a very rigorous way uh, through uh, a uh, committee that I was on for the Institute of Medicine of the National Academy of Sciences, which established dietary uh, recommendations for macronutrients, which uh, was the first time that anybody really did that seriously. So we produced this enormous volume. We had a committee looking at every aspect of uh, macronutrients and, and health. Uh, and my topic, which uh, I, I had to take on, was was cholesterol, dietary cholesterol. And when I went through the literature, I was just astonished at how small the effect is. It, and it's very difficult to even imagine how uh, uh, an effect of excess dietary cholesterol could influence heart disease risk uh, unless one just either had a mutation that caused the cholesterol to build up um, uh, uh, or, or when it was eating an enormous amount of dietary cholesterol. But for the most part, the effect was so small that it was almost unmeasurable. Um, so we, we wrote that report, um, and um, I sort of made that point. Uh, and then 15 years later, the current dietary guidelines come out saying, well, you know, after all these years of recommending keeping cholesterol less than 300 milligrams per day, we realize there's really no data to support that. And so it took a long time for the, 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 the U.S. dietary guidelines to catch up. And I was really in a bind because uh, there was this historical precedent of limiting dietary cholesterol because of its potential role in blood cholesterol levels, and it's really uh, not not even worth talking about. But the idea is still out there, and physicians still even I know, recommend I know. not eating eggs. Yeah, so eggs is in a whole other story. And so again, one moves from dietary components to the foods that those components are contained in, which is really one of the messages that I've tried to emphasize in all the work that we've done, trying to 
reach the public, which is again a nice opportunity here for for me to do this with you, um, is that we should be thinking about the overall context in which those nutrients are adjusted, foods and dietary patterns. And finally, the U.S. dietary guidelines are beginning to think about dietary patterns rather than just individual nutrients. However, they still have not abandoned um, focus on measuring this or that fatty, fatty acid. We should be thinking more about the, the, the overall food context. And, um, uh, the uh, important regulators of heart disease risk from a dietary standpoint um, are, are go way beyond uh, the effects on blood cholesterol. Um, and there, we have to think of, of a lot more complexity in, in the role of diet. Uh, not that well, cholesterol and lipoprotein effects aren't important. And here we can point to uh, saturated fatty acids, for example. We can have right. a discussion about that if you wish. Um, uh, raising blood LDL levels. Um, uh, does that translate into higher heart disease risk? Um, well, it's very hard to show that. In fact, there's almost no evidence to support that relationship. Um, and parenthetically, um, and maybe importantly, uh, uh, we've shown that the form of LDL that increases with saturated fat is not the small LDL, but the large LDL. Uh, and in fact, that led me to question whether or not uh, saturated fat was really an important factor in heart disease risk because our studies did not show that it was increasing small LDL in the majority of the population. There may be, there are individuals who are hyper-responders who probably ought to stay away from saturated fat. But for the general population, um, uh, I, I, I began to suspect that uh, this relationship was not as strong as people thought because uh, it was the less dangerous form of LDL that was increased by saturated fat. And in fact, that's what we showed. And I've gotten involved now in a lot of um, uh, I've taken a lot of heat for that, uh, but as time has gone on, uh, we first pu uh, published this with uh, Dr. Siri uh, Torino uh, in my group uh, about five years ago now, um, and it was we were we, we were really hit hard uh, when we published that first paper uh, questioning the relationship of saturated fat to heart disease risk. I'd glad to say that over the last year or two, there have been a number of reports that have supported. Uh, that, that absence of a, of a strong relationship. Uh, and the LDL particle story, I think, may be part of the reason for that, but there may be other factors as well. Again, it may not be the saturated fat itself that has been, uh, that should be incriminated here. It should be the foods in which that is consumed. And there may be, for example, in fact, there is evidence uh, from epidemiology that uh, red meat, particularly processed red meat, which contains saturated fat, may have uh, adverse effects on heart disease as well as life itself, and life expectancy, and, uh, and other diseases. Um, uh, and it may not be the saturated fat that's the most important factor there. Right. We don't know. What about um, carbohydrates, processed refined carbohydrates, and, the, and the, okay. their effect on okay. Okay. small dense LDL particles? Right. So, so you're talking uh, about context, right? right. That's right. So that takes me back to the Nutrition Committee again. So. Um, uh, I started, as I said, I've been involved in the protein research for a long time and, and dietary effects on lipoproteins as part of our program. Uh, and, and I got into the American Heart Association nutrition activity really as a result of that, um, uh, of that interest. Um, and uh, in addition to inheriting this uh, confusion between dietary cholesterol and blood cholesterol in the, in the general public, I also inherited from my colleagues and predecessors uh, in, the, in the field uh, the mantra that we should be going for low-fat diets. Um, uh, there was a, a very strong campaign to keep the message simple 
and stay away from fat. And there were a lot of forces in society as well as in, uh, in, in the academic and uh, industrial worlds that had an interest in, uh, in pushing that, uh, that message uh, as a way to uh, keep the public focused on what they, what they felt was the most important thing they should be doing, was restricting fat and saturated fat in particular. But what nobody really thought about seriously was the unintended consequence that that message which the food industry responded to in, its, in a very responsible way. They said, well, the uh, uh, experts in the field are telling us to uh, use low-fat products, so we're going to make low-fat foods, and we're going to make low-fat cookies, we're going to make low-fat uh, snack wells, uh, brownies, and, and, uh, and, okay. and, and, and so there was this tremendous uh, response, which led to a reduction in fat intake and saturated fat levels did go down the diet. Um, but the trade-off was an increase in carbohydrates. So getting back to your, your question, um, we became very interested in studying uh, the effects of a low-fat diet on lipoprotein metabolism. And so the very first study I did when I came here um, uh, to Berkeley um, and, and starting to do some uh, dietary work uh, was uh, to test the effects of a low-fat diet, the traditional low-fat diet. This is, again, when I was trying to get involved with the Heart Association. I, I was still in that mode. I was thinking, well, low-fat diets are good. This is what my predecessors had said, and so maybe that's what we should be studying. And the hypothesis was that people with small LDL would have um, a good response, that we put them on a low-fat diet, um, their heart disease risk should go down. Well, it turned out that it was actually the opposite. Um, we had a completely contrary result. We found that people who started off with large LDL when they were put on a low-fat diet, actually made their LDL smaller. So it went exactly the opposite direction. And that was like an eye-opener to me. Um, and I think it's still sort of somewhere percolating through uh, the nutritional world. So not, not everybody has really understood the implications of this. Um, but what we found shortly thereafter uh, is it wasn't so much the low-fat aspect of the diet that was causing this to happen. It was the fact that we were substituting carbohydrates. Um, High-carbohydrate diets can promote the production of these VLDL particles from the liver that make small LDL. So high carbohydrates clearly push uh, lipoprotein metabolism in the direction of atherogenic dyslipidemia. All the features, high triglycerides, small LDL, and systemic sense, a lower HDL. Uh, and so we've tried to sort of break down the uh, dietary response into uh, uh, a more um, specific role of particular carbohydrates, because as you know, carbohydrates cover a wide range of food substances, ranging from uh, simple sugars like fructose and glucose to complex uh, uh, starches and, and fiber uh, that are uh, less uh, easily metabolized and uh, do not raise blood sugar levels the way um, the processed uh, starches do. Um, so we have been very interested in narrowing that uh, down, and we and others have uh, pretty much come to the conclusion that probably the chief culprits um, in the production of this atherogenic dyslipidemic trait on low-fat, high-carbohydrate diets uh, are probably the simple sugars, um, uh, and fructose in particular uh, among them, which is, of course, a component of table sugar and added sugars. Uh, half of that is fructose, the other half is glucose. Uh, and so we think all carbohydrates have this potential for pushing lipid metabolism in that direction. but sugars, and particularly fructose, we think are the most potent. Uh, and uh, this has flown uh, in with a, uh, a huge popular uh, attention. Now, people really do understand 
uh, I think for the most part, um, that uh, dietary added sugars have adverse effects, not just on lipids or heart disease risk, but on many aspects of health and obesity, uh, for example, uh, being perhaps the biggest public health issue uh, that has been associated with um, added sugars, uh, particularly from liquids. But when you're saying fructose, what about fructose found in fruits, or and is that as much of a problem? Well, fructose is, is of course, a fruit sugar. Um, that's how it gets its name. And um, uh, But when it's, again, in the context of a food, like a, um, uh, let's say, a, uh, even an orange or an apple, um, uh, you are not getting either the dose of fructose or the uh, packaging of fructose uh, that um, you get when you add sugar to a Coke right. and you're drinking it in a, in, a, in a concentrated form. It's absorbed more rapidly um, and it, it's, uh, and there's much more of it. You have to eat an awful lot of fruit to get the amount of fructose that you get from a single uh, can of Coke, for example. Uh, but also importantly, um, it's the fiber and it's the overall packaging of the sugar that can sort of buffer its metabolic effects in mm -hmm. fruits that um, I think make it much less of a problem uh, uh, diet for the diet. So just let so people understand, you know, it's your, 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 your research and other re uh, others uh, have shown that it's more of the foods that have a high glycemic index, maybe foods that are more refined, have added sugars, added fructose. Well, I've been trying to carefully avoid that issue because I think okay. there's still a lot of uncertainty on that score. Um, uh, I, I think that the, the, the effects of fructose, uh, the metabolic effects of fructose are unquestionable. I don't think there's any doubt that this fructose makes fat. Makes, it, it makes The liver, when it encounters fructose, makes fat, and that starts this whole process in motion. Um, starches, again, coming in various packages ranging from uh, more easily processed uh, and, and more rapidly broken down starches uh, that make glucose because that's the breakdown product of the starch. They're they are considered high glycemic index, uh, ranging in starches that are less processed and, and con uh, consumed in the context of high fiber, uh, uh, which are less rapidly broken down, have lower glycemic index. That's all, no question about the um, differences in those characteristics of those starches. However, it's been difficult to show um, that glycemic uh, index itself is uh, an important influence on, on black protein metabolism, or for that matter, on heart disease risk. Um, uh, we, we sort of vilify um, processed foods, which I think there's a good reason to do, um, and that spills over into vilifying processed uh, starches, uh, and I don't have any reason to recommend, you know, I see patients, I, I certainly told them to stay away from that stuff because um, it just adds calories and, um, um, and uh, doesn't have all the nutrients that are contained in a, in a uh, uh, fiber-rich uh, whole grain form. But whether the glycemic index itself or the glycemic load, which is the total amount of those carbohydrates that are consumed that raise blood sugar levels, whether those are really harmful or not, um, I've tried to stay out of that argument because uh, I, I don't think there's really been um, a, a, a compelling uh, amount of evidence either way. In fact, the study was just reported by a colleague of mine from Harvard um, uh, in which they failed to show a relationship um, between glycemic index and um, and LDL levels or, or lipid levels. Um, so 
I'd say that's an open question. I think focusing on um, on sugars and added sugars is is uh, is is a, a way that we can all come together. <laughs> uh, people that have been focused on fat are, uh, as as a culprit, uh, for the most part, uh, are also acknowledging that added sugars is a big problem. So so we come, we've come together on this issue. Beyond that, I think we still have a lot to learn. And the combination between the added sugars and the saturated fat is that perhaps the worst combo? That would be the, that's the one study that I would like to see somebody fund. I've 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 been trying to do nutrition research uh, in a controlled way uh, for a number of years, um, uh, and um, we sort of worked our way to that question: um, Could there be some combinatorial effect that could explain? Uh, what I would you know, call sort of the Big Mac effect uh, by having uh, your your uh, red meat, your bacon, and your cheese uh, on a white bun right. with, with a milkshake. <laughs> right. right. So uh, uh, I, I think that might be true, but it really hasn't been studied. And it's something I really would, um, uh, it's very hard to find sponsors. These, are, these studies are hard to do, they're expensive to do. Uh, and um, we haven't yet found anyone interested in that question enough to uh, to seriously consider funding it because it involves doing it you know, when you get into combinatorial uh, nutrition it gets really expensive because you have to have an arm where there's a high saturated fat with no added you know without with lower lower carb high saturated fat with with higher carb low saturated fat you know et cetera you get into a very big production in order to do that study properly plus which we think uh, there is heterogeneity in the population, that there are some people that are more sensitive to these adverse effects. So you have to have a large enough study population, you know, 40, 80, 100 people minimum, to be able uh, to sort out these effects. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat, um, how should I say, frustrated that I, uh, that question uh, may go unanswered. It's a very important question yeah. when we're talking about. Right. You talk. Right. You you mentioned that you think the role that nutrition plays in cardiovascular right. health is right. very very important. Right. And so, I think yeah. people yeah. need to know what right. to eat. Yeah. And well, you know, uh, I'll just say this as a editorial comment. Um, it's a fact that NIH, which has been the major funder of biomedical research, which is the major funder of biomedical research in the world, um, has basically pulled the plug on clinical research support um, in general. Um, uh, as a general area of emphasis, uh, the infrastructure for doing good nutritional studies in particular has relied on a mechanism that um, is now uh, uh, being withdrawn uh, due to funding constraints, um, and it's affecting our ability to do good nutritional research. So we have to rely on other sources, um, and um, when we rely on industry, I've done a lot of work sponsored by the National Dairy Council, I'll say that, you know, acknowledge as a disclosure. Um, but they haven't told me what to find. They haven't. You know, they didn't tell me that my first study was going to come up with a completely opposite result from what I expected. And, and nothing I've done since then has been dictated by the dairy industry. But they've been very good about funding the work because we've been able to show um, that saturated fat is not as uh, maybe the evil agent of doom that has been uh, it's been made out to be. Uh, and uh, others have shown that. Uh, when saturated fat is packaged in a dairy product, particularly a, a fermented dairy product, there may actually be some metabolic benefits. So we've been on a sort of a, a parallel course, not because they've told me what to do, but because we've been very interested in pursuing work that really, uh, I think, justifies 
um, a uh, somewhat more relaxed uh, uh, approach to consuming dairy uh, dairy fats than, than has been generally recommended. Um, having said that, um, you know I think that the um, uh, uh, sponsorship for research uh, of this scale uh, has to come from other sources, um, and so I'm you know very glad that. I'm involved in an advisory role to some, some such such work that's going on, uh, funded through philanthropy, um, and I think that's one of the best ways uh, to to do uh, research of the type we're talking about, is uh, it's through philanthropic support. But um, we still, I personally have not yet gotten to the point where uh, I see the potential for doing these large studies um, with the kind of support we need. Um, and as, as you say, I think it's really important that we figure out ways of getting that support. Well, you've certainly pioneered um, much of the research on, that has changed the way the public thinks about, you know, cholesterol and, and, and you know, LDL cholesterol in particular, and also the foods we eat and how the foods we eat affect cholesterol. It's becoming more and more popular now that saturated fats aren't the culprit to heart disease. As such. Sort of. Yes. As, so, as such. Right. But, but here's my next question for you. So we've, we spend... As a, as a country, you know, tens of billions of dollars every year on this drug that you mentioned, LDL-lowering drugs like statins. And this, as far as I understand, is on the premise mostly that when someone goes to get their lipid panel measured in, from their doctor in the primary care physician, it's based on their total LDL cholesterol because most physicians do not measure all the different particle sizes of LDL yeah, and it's not always. I just say it, it's not something that has to be done in, in across the entire population. But certainly, when we're considering treatment, um, there I think it does have a role. Yes, and so what are the effects of statins on the small dense LDL okay. particles okay. and right. and so, health in general? Right. I mean. So you've hit you've hit on another one of my lives uh, because. Uh, uh, more than half my research program, and in fact, the majority of my research program now uh, that's NIH funded is through a grant to study statin effects. And uh, the basis for response to statins and the basis particularly for differential response uh, across the population. Um, so as we've uh, gotten deeply involved in uh, studying statins effects, we certainly have had a, 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 an interest in uh, determining how that relates to the lipoprotein um, profile. Uh, and um, if you think back to uh, what I described about the role of uh, the LDL receptor in clearing LDL particles and the fact that the small LDL particles are less uh, efficiently removed by the LDL receptor, and one uh, accepts the, the well-established fact that uh, a major mechanism by which statins lower LDL is by increasing LDL receptor activity, if you take all that information uh, and put it together, uh, you come out with the conclusion, or the hypothesis, perhaps, um, to start with, that statins uh, would have a, a lesser effect on smaller LDL particles because they're more dependent on receptor-mediated uptake. And in fact, we've shown that. So um, we've done, now we've studied almost every statin um, and shown that um, the effects on smaller LDL particles, particularly the very smallest LDL particles, um, are blunted compared with larger LDL. It's not as if there's no effect at all, but they're, they're less efficiently uh, cleared. So statins tend to work primarily on the larger cholesterol-rich LDL particles, and 
the lowering of LDL cholesterol by statins uh, is more strongly related to that effect than the effect on the smaller LDL, which are cholesterol depleted. Now, the, now uh, uh, having said that, um, there is absolutely no doubt that the LDL lowering effect of statins contributes to reduced heart disease risk. Sure. I think that's unquestionable. There are other mechanisms involved uh, that I'm sure uh, that, that we've been studying that can uh, uh, be influenced by statins, including adverse effects, which are a very important part of our current research. Um, but the benefits uh, 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 are, are, are absolutely well established. Uh, one of the most effective treatments we have for any medical condition, other than maybe antibiotics for infections, uh, are statins for lowering LDL, 30-40% reduction in risk, big time. Um, and so that be, that's because um, there are a set of LDL particles that are lowered by statins that are bad. And uh, so it's not as if it's all or none. It's just um, statins could be more effective if they were able to lower uh, the uh, smaller particles. The ones that play a bigger role in heart right. disease risk. Right. Well, if you, if you, the way I think about it is if you're lowering the larger LDL particles, even though in a way I don't think that's good because you need larger LDL, but you're also lowering, you're not, you have less of it around to be processed into lower, yeah. or smaller. Yeah, LDL although LDL part particles. of that effect, yeah, that's right. Uh, although part of the effect in the small LDL is coming through the triglyceride axis, which uh, is, we're, we're very interested in that effect as well. Statins may affect triglyceride metabolism in ways that could affect small LDL production. Um, but the, uh, the net effect is, um, uh, is uh, less than it could be if we had a drug that lowered the small LDL particles um, more effectively. What do you think about dietary changes compared to using uh, statins? Like if a person, now I know not everyone's going to do a dietary change. So statins obviously have their place and they are probably saving, you know, a few years on people's lives that wouldn't otherwise make any dietary change. But what are your thoughts or, you know, on dietary changes and, and that modulating heart disease risk as opposed to taking statins? So I have to have a disclosure here, um, you know, spending a lot of my time and still doing a lot of work in nutrition. Um, it's been frustrating uh, to observe uh, uh, how limited the evidence is that making a dietary change reduces heart disease disease risk. Uh, the, the, the strongest evidence that we have for any kind of treatment uh, is based on randomized controlled trials. And as I mentioned, dietary studies, even on measuring lipids, let alone heart attacks, uh, require an enormous investment of time and energy and funding. So there's been very little um, basis for uh, concluding that a dietary modification, lower fat, lower carbohydrates even, um, reduces heart disease risk. Um, uh, and um, it partly is because the studies haven't been done, wow. and partly because the studies that have been done have been, have been limited by um, a number of issues. Uh, compliance uh, to these studies is, is always decays over time, and you need to be on these diets for long periods of time to see an effect. Uh, plus which the actual um, dietary effects are, are, not, are not huge. Uh, they vary among individuals. So there's people that are really responsive to diet, and I see these in my practice, um, for whom diet is extremely important. But if you average it out over the population, uh, the effect on uh, markers of heart disease risk, lipid, small LDL, uh, uh, or blood pressure even, um, they're, they're measurable. but um, in terms of the magnitude of those effects across the population, 
they're much smaller than what can be achieved with statins and their effects on LDL levels. It's you know disappointing to have to say that because I'm a firm believer in lifestyle uh, and uh, lifestyle intervention, uh, both diet and exercise, uh, for reducing heart disease risk and promoting health overall. But when it comes to people who are at high risk for heart disease, um, diet alone um, is 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 frustratingly difficult to show that there can be a long term benefit. Not because there is isn't such a benefit, but the studies just aren't there to help support that. Statin trials supported by right. industry, big studies, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. We've assembled data from 40,000 people in statin trials looking at genetic effects on response. Huge amount of data, beautiful data, uh, millions uh, that have been used to support these studies. So that's disappointing to me. Yeah, I right. Mean. Well, that's right. So the money has been coming uh, where the profit comes in. And fortunately, in the case of statins, it's been okay because the statins, uh, by and large, uh, have fulfilled their expectations with the proviso that uh, there is a huge variation in response. And even though there's a 30 to 40 percent reduction in heart disease risk in patients who are at risk, um, uh, or even in the general population, uh, it's been applied uh, statins that have now been studied just huge segments of the population, men, women, uh, different ethnic groups, different lipid levels, and they seem to have a similar benefit across that population, but it's not 100%, and it's not even 50% for the most part. So there is a residual risk on statins that we still have to solve uh, how we best approach that. I think lifestyle is important. I think if we were all fit and lean, um, a lot of that residual risk would go away. Very hard to prove that, but that seems like a very plausible, uh, and certainly in my case, actionable um, advice to give to patients is to work on things that you can uh, control in your lifestyle. But if you remain uh, at risk for heart disease, um, as a physician, I'll write a stand prescription if I felt it was needed. Not to guarantee uh, that people are going to live forever or anything close to that, but it, it has a statistically uh, real effect on risk. And we haven't gotten there with diet. We don't have that kind of data for diet. So this sort of leads me to my next question is, do you think that statins are overprescribed in a way, uh, based on you know the the fact that most physicians don't don't look at all the LDL particle sizes, don't look at all the genetic factors. They just look at you know total LDL cholesterol, and if it's really high, you know, and maybe they have high it will be ApoB, um, they may prescribe a statin. Uh, you know, whereas if you look at two people, they may both have high LDL total cholesterol, but one may have no small, L, you right. know, dense LDL one may have high. So, um, yeah. and then what about the side effects of statins? So, right. are they overprescribed yeah. and are the side effects? This, these are these are great questions which have a lot of implications. Um, regarding uh, the prescription of statins, you can, depending on which hat I choose to wear, I could argue that uh, statins are overprescribed because a lot of people are taking statins who are not who are not likely to benefit. But I could put on another hat and say there's a lot of people out there who should be on statins who aren't because uh, physicians aren't really sufficiently aggressive in taking high-risk patients and, and, and lowering their LDL uh, in, a, in, a, in a maximal way, you know, way that still is, is safe. So there's, there's subsets of the population that are undertreated, uh, and there's a large segment of the population who are taking statins prophylactically um, based on guidelines which have continued to evolve, which I was 
part of that process for a while, and then I withdrew from it because I realized I was not happy with the way things were going in terms of the recommendations, which have uh, evolved to um, uh, identify even larger segments of the population that should be taking statins to the point that I think there are a huge number of people that are going to be taking statins who really don't need it. Um, and that's where the adverse effect problem comes into play. So my current NIH grant, which is again the biggest part of my program right now, is to um, identify markers for susceptibility, uh, both to the benefits of statin as well as to the adverse effects. And those adverse effects, um, people tend to minimize because uh, the benefits in for high-risk patients are, 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 are so evident from the clinical trials. But as you look at the data, um, there are some pretty surprisingly uh, adverse things that are out there that um, are a little bit below the radar screen. Uh, one of them is muscle effects, uh, which certainly have been recognized, and people tend to think about them in the more extreme case where people get muscle damage and, and life-threatening complications of, of muscle breakdown. Uh, that's very rare, fortunately, otherwise statins wouldn't be out there the way they are. But um, we and others uh, begin to develop evidence that there may be effects on muscle metabolism that might be much more uh, widespread that could uh, uh, accumulate over time in a way that may not be manifest in an obvious symptom, but could lead uh, to changes in, in muscle function, muscle strength. Um, this is a hypothesis that underlies the work that we're doing now uh, uh, in terms of the adverse effects of statins on muscle. But there's an even bigger problem which emerged a few years ago from one of my colleagues, actually, from uh, Harvard, uh, who uh, discovered in a clinical trial that, that he, he organized, and then it turned out uh, to be in the literature. People just hadn't really recognized it. Um, a, a significant percentage of people taking statins are going to develop uh, diabetes. And diabetes is not something you want to acquire as a result of drug treatment. Uh, it, of course, increases heart disease risk. Um, the magnitude of that effect turns out to be surprisingly high. It's um, something on the order of 11 to 12 percent of statin users um, are at risk for developing type 2 diabetes. In women, in particular, we published a paper that sort of opened this up, actually. Um, in women, the evidence is that maybe uh, two or three or four times that, maybe as many as 30 to 40 percent of otherwise healthy women who are put on statins uh, uh, could go on to develop type 2 diabetes over, over time. Uh, that's, a, that's a very unacceptable number. Now, if you're a woman that uh, has a high LDL or a woman that has a very strong predisposition to heart disease risk, that, that shouldn't stand in the way of treatment. But um, because our guidelines have opened up a statin use to a much larger percentage of the population as a prophylactic, uh, uh, in what's called primary prevention, that is in healthy people who have not yet had heart disease but who are considered at risk because a high percentage of those individuals, and women I would point out in particular, uh, uh, have a, a, a relatively higher uh, likelihood of an adverse effect, but type 2 diabetes in particular, than benefit. Um, I think uh, we have to look seriously at uh, finding ways of improving our selection of patients uh, for statin use, and that, again, is driving my research. And fortunately, again, uh, as much as I'm uh, wedded to nutrition and, and its role in, in, in health and, and, and heart disease in particular, um, uh, statins are a lot easier to study. 
and um, uh, and so and, and so and, and I think from a public health standpoint, um, especially now with widespread use of statins, almost like a dietary supplement, right? People take statins you know, as if they're you know, like a vitamin. Um, we have to be really careful about that, and and that's where I think uh, hopefully with studies we're embarking on and. This year, in the current phase of our advanced cycle, we're just starting to do this work. Uh, I really feel uh, very committed and passionate about um, using the tools of uh, what we call precision medicine or genomic medicine, uh, as well as more uh, refined uh, uh, laboratory tools such as this particle measurements. I'll come to that in a minute uh, to better identify those people who are most likely to benefit. So I think physicians, getting back to your question. Um, uh, who are using LDL cholesterol as the barometer of statin efficacy uh, are potentially going in the wrong direction. And um, we, we, need, we need better uh, attention to uh, the particles and the measurements of the particles themselves rather than LDL cholesterol uh, when, we just, when we as physicians are recommending particularly drug treatment. Um, uh, and we should be monitoring uh, those particles uh, as the primary target of treatment. Because they're the, particularly the smaller particles, um, give us a much better handle on therapeutic benefit of, of any treatment. Yeah. So your the test that you you played a role in developing, which is I believe used by Quest Diagnostics, it's like based on physics, so essentially, yes, right? right? You're just throwing right. these particles right. To, right. through the air, and based on yeah. the way they're going through the air, you can figure out their density. But why is that not used in in medicine, right. and can we get right. physicians to start adopting this? I mean, yeah. Well, of course, I, I you know disclose here that um, along the way, because of my interest in life protein metabolism and where I've been able to do my work initially at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab uh, and, and now here at Children's Hospital, uh, I've been able to work with people that have had analytic capabilities that have led to um, methodologies. Um, uh, the most recent, and uh, this is one you mentioned, I'll come back in a minute uh, to, to that particular method. But uh, I, uh, you know, we've, so we, we brought this to the public through, through, through industry. And so, um, you know, I, we do have patents and they've been licensed to, to do this methodology. So that's a disclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that's the way you get things out there, um, is through that kind of partnership. And um, uh, it has penetrated a certain segment of the preventive cardiology community. There are lipidologists in particular who are proliferating. Fortunately, there's a lot of lipid education going on, and the people that are really skilled in understanding lipid metabolism uh, are at least thinking about lipoprotein particles, uh, not necessarily yet about uh, subfractions, but at least a particle versus the LDL cholesterol is taking you in the right direction because that's really the first step in terms of narrowing down the focus on what you should be treating. That's being understood, but it's still a relatively small percentage of the entire medical community that would consider themselves lipidologists or cardiologists. What about the rest of the, uh, 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 the physician community? Well, they've been confused, and uh, part of that is because there's been um, a number of methods that have been out there, not just the ones that I developed, but others that have used different systems and different uh, calibration, different ways of organizing the data, different ways of trying to educate the public a lot of it, but driven by the companies that have promoted these methods, and so physicians were getting barraged and still are with competing claims for this or that method. Um, not as well standardized, certainly, as the LDL cholesterol measurement. So it's been kind of given a backseat 
in part because of that confusion, in part because a lot of people still are not convinced that even my colleagues, even the lipidology community is not fully convinced that the smaller particles are that much worse than the larger particles, despite all the data we have. So it, I'm always on the trail trying to sort of remind people of what the data show. Um, I give a talk called Not All LVO Particles Are Created Equal, um, and, and people just need to understand that. Um, so there's been a slow uptake because of the confusion, uh, scientific confusion, the methodological confusion, and at one point it was a price issue as well. Is it really cost effective to be using this test in you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of people um, uh, when it costs an arm and a leg? Well, uh, this new method that we've, it's not so new anymore, I've been looking at it for like over 10 years, right. um, but Quest did uh, partner with us and has been uh, now more actively engaged in supporting uh, the uh, development of this methodology, improvement of the methodologies to be more refined. Uh, so this is one of the more refined measurements. That, in fact, it is the most refined measurement we have for light protein analysis um, using this technique called ion mobility, which sprays particles into air. And then we count them as a function of their size, and it's very elegant, it's based on physics. Uh, and it works, and, and it gives us data that is entirely consistent with everything we've known from our previous methods. Um, it's, it's standardization is in progress, uh, but it's easily, relatively easily standardized. Uh, and its cost has come down to something, you know, that's not that much more than doing a standard cholesterol panel. So, so none of those things should be barriers anymore. So I'm hoping that um, as time goes on, hopefully within my lifetime, um, that uh, physicians will see uh, the role of this in their clinical practice. Mm -hmm. Certainly, uh, when they're trying to make a treatment decision, if they're considering a patient um, uh, for some sort of intervention, I think that's where the uh, particle analysis really is important. For screening the population, I think one can argue uh, that standard lipid tests do a fairly good job. But if you're having somebody view, or in my case, patients, uh, are on the cusp about whether they should be viewing uh, with their lipids, I think these measurements add enormously to our ability to target those people um, who would benefit from certain kinds of treatments, statins, diet, um, and then monitoring them as they're mm. undergoing treatment. So if anyone that's had a standard lipid panel done and let's say their LDL cholesterol was high, they can go to Quest Diagnostics and, and get the, that, that test done or do they need a doctor's prescription for it? No, no, yeah, no, this is all done. Uh, by medical orders, there has to be not only a doctor's prescription, but there's got to be a diagnosis. Um, diagnosis? So, yeah, to get to get insurance reimbursement, you have to uh, have a, a defined um, basis for, for for doing those tests. Um, uh, insurance policies, Medicare, are starting to uh, have been uh, reimbursing for those tests, but uh, but you you have to you have to have a medical uh, reason, uh, and that gets back to the issue of what uh, what criteria should be used uh, to identify someone who should have this test done. Um, one can argue that if one has a really high LDL cholesterol, one might not even need this test because if the LDL cholesterol is high enough, it's almost always going to have some of the small LDL particles in it. Uh, I'm talking about very high LDL. The people that uh, really are most likely to uh, get benefit from knowing uh, what their particle profile looks like are those that have sort of the garden variety levels of LDL What's cholesterol. What's that considered to be? Uh, well, the average uh, in the population is something like 115 or 120 milligrams per deciliter. Um, uh, uh, if you take a, a population of heart attack patients, it's only slightly higher than that. Uh, so, so that's another one of the important messages that 
me and others tried to convey is that LDL cholesterol, um, because of this particle difference, um, does not discriminate uh, heart disease patients from the general population uh, as well as does the particle measurements, which are more specifically related to disease risk. Uh, so in those individuals who have LDL cholesterol in that sort of borderline range between, quote, normal, uh, you know, unaffected uh, uh, people at low risk for heart disease versus those that have heart disease, there is a relatively tight range uh, occupying the middle of the cholesterol distribution. That's where um, I think this particle measurement really has uh, the greatest potential for, for refining risk assessment and identifying people that should be considered candidates for treatment uh, with, with whatever one can use to help lower those particle concentrations. Um, I don't want to take too much more of your time because you've been so generous and we've covered so much, but <laughs> this brings me to one... This, what, what about someone, as a follow-up to that, what about someone that has, you mentioned genetic risk factors. Let's say they have a genetic risk factor like, uh, you know, they have an APOE4 allele, which means they can't uh, recycle the LDL, you know, cholesterol back to the liver as efficiently. So they have more LDL cholesterol around. And they have a level of, let's say, 150, right. which right. is much higher than what you said the average would right. be. But they don't—they don't eat a lot of refined carbohydrates or you know added sugars, things like that. Do you think they could still benefit from this, you know, particle test? Well, those that have APOE four, um, you know, have a sort of a d additional uh, dimension uh, t to risk. We don't yes. understand all the reasons for that, um, but um, the the determination of small LDL particles is driven by uh, many other factors, including other genes, that are probably even more important than APOE, actually. Mm. Uh, so the APOE4 axis sort of amplifies uh, the risk um, associated with small LDL or, or any other uh, heart disease risk factor. Um, but the recommendations for uh, trying to monitor or manage small LDL particles. Um, I, I've been, I thought about this a lot recently. I, I, I think they represent sort of a separate axis from the APOE. I think the APOE axis um, uh, uh, it, it, it amplifies the risk, but it doesn't necessarily change the fundamental biology for um, the production of the mm -hmm. small LDL particles. But if someone were to have their lipid panel done by their physician and it was 150, let's say they didn't know they were APOE4, their physician would look at that and go, whoa, that's really high. Right. And, and, and I think, you know, if there's, it's not just on the LDL, but um, uh, uh, there's a range. If, if, if you want to actually pick a number, the uh, sort of consensus number that the lipid community cardiology community has accepted as mandating attention uh, for genetic reasons is an LDL actually at 190. So it's even higher than that. So I'll start with that. If your LDL is 190 and greater, uh, the particle measurement probably isn't going to affect the treatment decision because in almost all cases, those patients have genetic abnormalities. APOE may be part of it, but not, not the cause of those very high levels. That's usually an LDL receptor abnormality. Um, uh, those patients are at sufficiently uh, high lifelong risk of heart disease that they are candidates for statin therapy almost in all cases. It's 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 very difficult to uh, uh, achieve a significant uh, uh, approach towards uh, optimizing LDL levels in those patients. So that's 190. 150, um, sort of halfway in between. So that's a gray zone. And so it depends not just on the LDL, but the overall risk 
blood pressure, diabetes, family history. Uh, and and uh, triglycerides have not entered into the equation. Mm. Uh, so, you know, there's epidemiologists that do all this number crunching and they come up with risk assessment tools. Triglyceride hasn't entered into it because it's so tightly related to everything else. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a very bouncy measurement. It's, it's much less uh, stable over time, even from day to day, as LDL cholesterol and HDL cholesterol. So it sort of falls out of these equations. But it's part of this atherogenitis lipidemia phenotype. It's part of that trait. It's important, but as a measurement, it doesn't stand up to this field of particles in terms of its association with risk or even HDL. So anyway, this risk assessment is done, and then you decide, well, is this patient at sufficiently high risk using these, uh, you know, if you're in the swing of things uh, uh, with the guidelines, you do these uh, assessments of, of likelihood of having a heart attack over the next 10 years, and if it's high enough, um, then you jump in with aggressive treatment, and I think uh, if the risk is high enough, you, you probably use that you use that stem for those patients as well. But it's not an automatic decision. That's where the particle measurement hasn't yet achieved mm -hmm. the level of um, acceptance uh, uh, to enter into those risk calculation formulas. Partly because the risk assessment tools that we have work pretty well by themselves, um, uh, and there's. This is actually a very interesting point from a sort of a, um, should I say, a conceptual standpoint. So I'm just going to say this because that's it's maybe a little bit complicated. But um, when you have some very strong predictors of heart disease risk, blood pressure, diabetes, uh, even LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, these standard measurements, and you throw them into a risk formula and you add in age and sex, you can explain a lot of risk that way. Um, uh, you can argue what that explanatory number is, whether it's 50% or 70%, it's, it's very high. So if you add LDL particles or these more uh, refined measurements of uh, particle concentrations into those formulas, you don't get much additional explanation of risk because a lot of these things are interrelated with one another. And, um, and so there is a confusion between the magnitude by which you can improve risk prediction by these measurements versus what's really important biologically that you should be treating. And um, uh, so people think, well, because you, uh, the particle measurements don't add that much to the risk assessment, but it, it, it adds a, a measurable amount. It's just not a lot. Um, people say, well, you know, let's not worry about that. But from a biological standpoint, that may be the driving factor. So if you turn that whole process around and you throw out the standard factors and you, and you just use the particle concentrations and maybe a few other things like age and sex, you can also explain a lot of the risk. Um, so you can choose your weapon, <laughs> but don't confuse the ability to you know, predict risk with what you should be treating because those are not always the same. I hope that's not too complicated. But that, to me, is a very interesting point. It is very interesting. Uh, it is very interesting. Uh, it is a little complicated. It is complicated, so you may not want to get too far into that. And then there's also the issue of relative risk versus absolute risk, which is an important... Uh, that's something that I think people should be able to understand because it's really important as well. If your relative risk... if you're, I'm sorry, if your absolute risk of heart disease is very low, if you're like a super healthy person um, that has immaculate blood pressure is lean, fit, um, blood sugar is great, um, and their LDL cholesterol or even small LDL particles are, are elevated, it may increase the risk by two or three-fold. Mm -hmm. But if it's two to three times a very small number, that's still a very right. small number. Um, and people sort of confuse that with um, how much benefit you're likely to get from lipid lowering. It really depends on the absolute risk. Right. 
No, that's that's actually a really good point. And I think we'll end on that point. Okay. Um, okay. Ron, thank you so much. Okay. I know that you don't have a website, but you are, you know, people can find you at Corey. What about talks? You mentioned not all LDL particles are the same. Are there yes. certain talks people can look up and find um, if they want to hear you speak? Uh, uh, th th yes, there have been some webcasts I've done. Um, I can't give you chapter and verse, but I'm, I'm Googleable, I guess. Ron Krauss, Google. Yeah, yeah something. And like also, that. they can yeah. find you at Corey.org. Right. So exactly. Thank yeah. you so much, okay. Ron. Nice really, you. really interesting conversation. Great questions. Okay. Okay, guys, that's it for this podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. You can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as FoundMyFitness. And usually if you tweet at me, I actually do read it and often reply. I'll catch you guys next time.